Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Desire the unadulterated milk of the word like a newborn baby, that you may grow thereby. His divine power has given to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption of the world through lust." Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them by means of truth. Thy word is truth. So, let's bow our heads together and open in prayer before we open the word of truth. Father, we're thankful for the way in which you have worked in the lives of these uh, two young men and how they have come to understand that salvation is not by works, it's not by anything that we do, it is what Christ did on the cross for us, and that he completed that work of salvation, paying the penalty for our sin, that we do not have to do anything except simply to trust in him to believe he is who he claimed to be and that he did what he claimed to do. And by faith alone, in Christ alone, we have everlasting life. Now, Father, Christian life we know doesn't stop there. It begins. So now as we continue our study in understanding what you've provided for us in our spiritual life, we pray that you would guide and direct our thinking and expand it by your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. We have been studying in Ephesians, and we are in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 26 to 27. But we'll take a little look at some other passages today, and we'll look at uh, 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 12, verses 1 through 10. Now, what we're going to focus on this morning is on what we began last time, is understanding God's grace. A lot of people give lip service to grace. A lot of people talk about grace, but few people go to the Bible to understand what grace means. And what we have been doing over the last several weeks is trying to understand the spiritual skills that we are to develop uh, based upon God's Word so that we can deal with the good times, the bad times, the adversities, the prosperity, the heartaches, the problems that we face in life. And as we sang in the hymn by Martin Luther, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, that God has provided us a fortress. He is our fortress. But there are different skills in the Scripture that enable us to make that fortress that divine fortress, our fortress. So we've talked about the first four. We talked about confession of sin. We talked about walking by the Holy Spirit. Uh, we talked about what we call the faith rest drill, that is trusting God, claiming his promises. And then last week we talked about aligning our thinking to the grace of God and being in, and using God's grace 
in our spiritual growth. I ran across this great quote this week. Oh, the joy of trusting Jesus, trusting where we cannot trace, leaning hard upon his promise, proving his sufficient grace. See, that links what we studied on the faith rest drill and trusting God, claiming his promises as Second uh, Peter 1, 3, and 4 tells us, which I just quoted, showing that that is connected with understanding God's grace and using God's grace in our life. But most people just think of grace as, well, that is God's free gift, and they, they can't quite get beyond that. And so we're going to connect these dots today. So we're talking about orienting or aligning our lives to grace. And I started off with this illustration last week. And this is a USGS topographical map. And before we had uh, had uh, various satellites and the ability to find our location that way, uh, we had to do it the old-fashioned way, and it's still the way that should be taught so that people understand what they're actually doing. And so you would look at a topographical map, and they're the same map on both sides, but the one on the right is just a blow-up of what's on the left. And this was a this is a 14,309-foot peak in the Uncompahgre National Forest up in the on the western slope in Colorado. And each one of these lines represents about 500 feet of elevation. So if you, once you learn how to read it, you can see that here they're spread out. So that's a gradual slope. And over here, they're very close together, so that means it's a cliff. And you can orient the map if you're standing, let's say you're standing down here on the southern part or over, over here's a trail. Uh, trail going this way. And so if you're over here, you can see this peak. You can see that there's a bit of a ridge here. And you can see there's a peak here and that there's a ridge line going this way. And so you can line your map up that way so that you can adjust to the reality of your terrain and walk in the correct direction. And that's what we mean when I use these terms grace orientation. We have to orient or align our lives to grace because that's God's policy for the way he deals with mankind. And so that's a foundation for many things that are part of our Christian life. The other term that we'll get to in a couple of weeks is doctrinal orientation, doctrine being that which Scripture teaches, and we are to align our thinking and our lives to what the Bible teaches. So in the old days, we used a compass and a topographical map to align ourselves to reality. Today, we use GPS and other technology, but spiritually, we use the Bible because the Bible is God's Word. So we have to align ourselves with God's grace, and we have to align ourselves with the teaching of Scripture. So what we're going to look at this morning, briefly, I'm going to try to finish early so that we have more time for the congregational meeting. We're going to see that the Bible teaches that God's sufficient grace, sufficient means it's enough, more than enough, it's all that we need, that God's sufficient grace 
is directly connected to controlling the arrogance problem and learning humility. Now, some of you may think, well, I don't have an arrogance problem. Well, that shows that you do. (laughs) We all have an arrogance problem. The second thing we'll learn is that humility is central to learning obedience to God's authority. And the third thing is that without learning obedience to God's authority, we will always struggle with submission and obedience to human authority. These things are all connected in the Scripture. So that's basic, basically what we're going to do this morning. Now, the passage that got us into this is the beginning of this section in Ephesians 4, going down through uh, chapter 6, verse 9, that many people think is very practical. Well, it is in one sense because throughout this section there are various commands. And one of the first command that comes along in Ephesians 4, 26 and 27 is the command to be angry and do not sin. And we've talked about that and covered that in detail, but anger is also a result of, of arrogance. Arrogance is the, really the root sin. This was the sin of uh, Satan before he fell. He wanted to be like God and be worshipped as God and being uh, adored like God and having all of the uh, angels worship him instead of God, which is the height of, of arrogance. And that is why in the second verse says, don't give place to the devil because when we yield to any sin... And that is always a, we're always volitionally responsible. That means because we, uh, we aren't made to sin. We do it out of our own decision. And the result is that it opens the door to many other sins. And so I had this chart connecting anger to a number of sins. A lot of people have trouble with sin. They think sin is just, you know, the terrible two or the fearsome four, the nasty nine. And they rarely ever dig deeper. But the scripture says that the worst sins are the sins of our mind, mental attitude sins, emotional sins. These are the sins that trigger many other sins. And one of those that is the gateway to all these other sins is anger. Produces mental attitude and emotional sins such as bitterness, jealousy, resentment, Vengeance, the thinking about how you're going to get back at someone, that can lead to sins of the tongue, such as gossip and slander, abusive speech, tempting to intimidate people, uh, using innuendo to assassinate their character, and it can lead to physical and overt sins, such as cruelty or physical abuse, emotional abuse, physical violence, many, many, many other sins. So how do we deal with these things? Well, the root sin, I believe, of all sins is just arrogance. We know better than God. We have our own way of doing things. Scripture says twice in Proverbs, there is a way that seems right to man, but the end thereof, the result of it is death. It's not talking about spiritual death in that passage. It's probably all-inclusive, but it is that we end up with a death-like existence. It leads to destruction, and that's what sin does. So we have two options in the Scripture. Option number one is to continue to do it man's way. Uh, That's what I call human viewpoint 
solutions, and there are hundreds of them. It's like going into a candy store, and you can pick all kinds that are that you think are going to work better than God's solution. And God has one solution. Psalm 119, 50, This is my comfort in my affliction, for your word has given me life. The Bible presents the option, your choice, life or death. That's what Moses said to the Israelites before he went up on Mount Nebo to die. He said, I set before you this day the option of life or death. Follow the law that God gave them, and they would be blessed and have life. Follow their own path, and there would be death. And they illustrated uh, that throughout their lives. But Scripture says there's just this one option, the light of God's Word. Deuteronomy 30.19 is uh, reflects uh, Moses' final words. Therefore, choose life that both you and your descendants may live. So that brought us to this topic of how do we live the spiritual life? What are the skills that God has given us? And I have the metaphor here that comes from Scripture, a fortress. God is our fortress. He's our high tower. He is our stronghold. He is our shield. Uh, he is our rock. He is our tower. All of these different metaphors are given to Scripture, telling us that whatever problems, whatever difficulties we face in life, God has the solution. doesn't mean it's going to go away. There are many problems that we face in life that are uh, just the result of our own bad decisions. Scripture says, whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. God, in his grace, though, doesn't always bring the reaping about in our lives. We can all think of many things we have done that should have been uh, rewarded with all kinds of catastrophe, but God in his grace did not bring that about in our lives. So we're using this metaphor of a fortress. The word is often used in the Psalms. Psalm 18.2 says, The Lord is my rock and my fortress. That's the word Masada, and that is a picture of Masada on the right. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my strength in whom I will trust, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. He just piles one metaphor upon another, rock, fortress, deliverer, strength, trust, uh, excuse me, shield, horn of my salvation, and stronghold. So we began to look at this. How do we live within this structure? What are the means that we have? And the first is that we have to confess sin. We confess sin because we are sinners, and that violates the righteousness of God so that we, when we confess sin as a believer, God promises that he will uh, forgive us of those sins, and he goes beyond that. That's his grace. He also cleanses us from all those sins we really didn't want to mention, that we didn't want to admit were sins, or that we had forgotten about. God cleanses us of all sins, and so we are restored to a position of fellowship where we can walk with the Lord. And in the New Testament, we are to walk by means of the Spirit, and what happens during that time, as we learned a couple of weeks ago, 
is God the Holy Spirit is filling our soul with the Word of God so that we can grow and mature. He produces the fruit of the Spirit. So we have the promise I just quoted in 1 John 1, 9, and God removes that sin as far from us as the east is from the west, the Psalms tells us. And in Isaiah 43, 25, we're told, uh, God is speaking. He says, I even I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. So scripture teaches that we have all sinned. Paul says in Romans 3, not only that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Glory of God is a phrase that refers to all of his essence. So we have fallen short, every one of us. But earlier, it quotes from the an Old Testament psalm that says, There is none righteous, no, not one. Not one human being can stand before God. Isaiah, who was one of the greatest prophets of the Old Testament, said in Isaiah 64, 6, all of our righteousness. When he says ours, he's not saying all of your righteousness. He's not pointing his finger at the uh, rest of the Jews. He is saying all of us, all of our righteousnesses, all of our good deeds, all those things we're so proud of that we did uh, are as filthy rags. That means we have no standing before God. So the issue is how do we become righteous? Well, it's very clear, even from the oldest part of the Old Testament, we have to trust God. We trust his promise. Before Jesus came and paid the penalty for our sins, there was an anticipation based on the prophecies and promises of the Old Testament that God would provide a redeemer. God would provide a savior. Even Job, in what is probably the oldest book of the Old Testament, says, I know that my redeemer liveth, and I will see him in the flesh. There was an understanding of resurrection and redemption as far back as the Hebrew scriptures go and that that is based on based on faith. And so the way to be righteous is made clear in Genesis uh, 13, excuse me, Genesis 15:6 where God uh, where the scripture says, and Abraham had already believed God. He'd believed that promise of salvation, and God counted it as righteousness. God gave him or imputed to him financial term, reckoned him righteous, so that he is declared righteous, not because of who he is, but because of God's grace. And that is true in the New Testament as well. So what do we do now? After we're back in fellowship, we are to walk by means of the Spirit, and that is always in contrast to living according to the sin nature or living according to the flesh. So we are to walk by the Spirit. We studied this, and we are to be filled by means of the Spirit, and we're filled with God's Word. So we are out of, we're back in fellowship. God the Holy Spirit is working in our lives. When we sin, we go out. Then we have to confess and come back. We're trusting God. So in the faith rest drill, the believer trusts God to fulfill his promises, relies upon biblical principles, and thinks through doctrinal rationales. What are the, how is the scripture presenting these things? And the result is that we have a relaxed mental attitude, we have peace, we have joy, because we know that God is able to take care of the situation.
So the way we do that, as we saw, is we grab a verse or part of a verse. We mix it with faith, trusting in God. We do what it says to do. That can be a mental attitude action. It could be a communication or an overt behavior. And then we relax in God's provision and oversight. David wrote in the Psalms, whenever I am afraid, I will trust in you. See, that's how we use it. We get something happens. We're about to get angry and do something, or we're afraid and we're going to do something. Initially, fear and anger are things that happen almost instantaneously. We have to decide are we going to act on those sins or not. In God, I have put my trust. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? In Hebrews 4.2, the problem with the Exodus generation was they didn't mix faith with the promises of God. So we started last time with grace orientation, which means to conform or align our thinking toward people, situations, and events with God's grace policy. Grace means that God has freely given us everything we need on the basis of who he is, and what Christ did on the cross. Jesus Christ paid the penalty in full for our sin so that God's righteousness and justice were satisfied. But beyond that, grace orientation involves humility. It's the basis for learning to love others in the unique way that Scripture tells us that we are to love one another as Christ has loved us. We can't do that on our own. Uh, the sin nature can only approximate a kind of love, but it's usually still motivated by uh, self-orientation. Only by walking by the Spirit does it produce the fruit of the Spirit, which begins the list with love. It is supernatural. And we are to treat others in kindness and graciousness because that's the way God treated us for Christ's sake. Grace also means that God has already freely given to us everything we need. Uh, he has given it to us in terms of the Holy Spirit, in terms of the Word of God, in terms of the things that happened to us at the instant of salvation when we trusted Christ as Savior. And grace means that our relationship to God is not based on our merit, activity, or actions, and that should shape how we relate to other people, not on the basis of what they deserve or not deserve, but on the basis of God's freely given grace. So when we think about this, God's grace has given us everything we need for life and godliness. He didn't leave anything out. That means that you can from go back into the Old Testament all the way through the New Testament. God provides we talked about grace at salvation uh, before, excuse me, before salvation. In common grace, God provides for everyone in the human race, even if they are obnoxious sinners. Second, God's grace at salvation. We're told we are saved by grace through faith. It's not of ourselves. It's not of works lest any man should boast. There's the problem with arrogance. God cuts it off. You can't be arrogant and trust Christ alone for your salvation. Arrogant meaning you're adding something to it, that I'm really such a wonderful person. Of course, God's going to save me. Uh, that is a uh, not what Scripture says. Scripture says that God demonstrated his love toward us and that while we were still sinners... 
while we were disobedient, while we were rebellious against God, Christ died for us. But now we're looking at grace after salvation in terms of the sufficiency of Scripture, that we are to grow by means of the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 12.9 is a verse we're heading to, so you may turn there now to chapter 12 if you haven't already, where God said to Paul, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weaknesses. In weakness. Two verses we need to keep in mind. 2 Timothy 2.1, the last epistle that Paul wrote, writing to his young protege Timothy, said, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. How do we become strong in grace? In verse 18, but grow by means of the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the first thing we're looking at is that God's sufficient grace is directly connected to controlling the arrogance problem we all have and learning humility. Where do we go for that? We go to first Corinthians, second Corinthians, rather, verse 12, 1 and following. Now the context here we have to remember is that the apostle Paul was perhaps one of the top ten most gifted, intelligent human beings that ever existed. Many who are not even Christians, but who read the Paul's epistles, recognize that this man had a genius above and beyond almost anyone else. And so that's not that's not just a Christian uh, bias. Others who are not Christians have recognized that as well. Not only was he gifted physically in terms of his mental abilities and his native intelligence, but he was provided an education under one who is arguably one of the greatest rabbis of all history. His name was Gamaliel, and he had a rabbinical school in Jerusalem where Paul was sent after he had his bar mitzvah. So he moved from his home in Tarsus, and he moved to Jerusalem, uh, probably lived with his sister's uh, family there, and he went to school. And there he learned. And as he grew, he became absolutely absorbed with the Pharisaical doctrine. He said, I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He hated Christians. He hated Christianity. He tried to disprove it at every point, and he sought to throw as many Christians into jail and have them executed as possible. But then when he was on his way to Damascus and he had an, ex, a, uh, an arrest warrant with him to arrest various uh, Jews who had become Christians, the Lord Jesus Christ, the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ, appeared to him on the road to Damascus, at which point he instantly realized that everything he had given his life to was wrong. And he recognized the grace of God in his life. And at that same time that he trusted Christ as his Savior, God gifted him and commissioned him to be an apostle and gave him a distinctive mission to be the apostle to the Gentiles. Now, when we come to this epistle, 
He is writing the second letter to the Corinthians. In the first letter, he had to deal with a lot of problems, and their number one problems were just arrogance. And they, that led to a host of different problems and sins, divisions within the congregation, uh, overlooking uh, egregious sins that were uh, even uh, rejected and, uh, and, and penalized by the Gentile, uh, unbelieving, pagan uh, culture. And uh, so he has to correct them on a number of points. And one of the points was that they had reinterpreted the ideas of miracles and some of the uh, special gifts related to divine revelation, such as speaking in languages they hadn't previously learned. And so he knew that they had elevated these kinds of miraculous gifts to a position of honor. And so he's going to deal with that in a very subtle way. He has to deal with their problem of arrogance, and so he's going to approach this by not boasting. He says, It is doubtless profitable for me to boast. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. He's going to tell them what has transpired. And it could be a matter of boasting, but he's saying he's not, going to, he's not boasting about it. He reluctantly is telling them this. And he says, I know a man in Christ, he's referring to himself, but he is putting it into third person. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know, or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows. He, he, he was in some sort of a vision or trance. He didn't know whether he was actually transported into uh, heavenly paradise or if this was just a vision. He says, such a one was caught up to the third heaven, which indicates that in some sense he is in the presence of God in the third heaven. Uh, according to uh, biblical uh, cosmology, you have a first heaven, which is the earth's atmosphere, a second heaven, which is the uh, solar system, the uh, the universe, and then the abode of God is in the third heaven. And he says how uh, he was caught up into paradise in verse 4, and he heard inexpressible words. What he means is he's not supposed to recommunicate that to anybody. He understood exactly what he was told. He says it's not lawful for a man to utter. It's not. He does not have permission from God to reveal this. In verse 5 he says, Of such a one I will boast, yet of myself I will not boast except in my infirmities. What he is saying is this is something God did for me. It wasn't due to anything special in me, so I'm not being arrogant here, but I need to make a point. And his point comes in uh, verse 6. He says, Though I might desire to boast, I will not be a fool, for I will speak the truth. But I refrain lest anyone should think of me above what he sees me to be or hears from me. See, he's dealing with the issue of arrogance and pride, which was a big problem in Corinth. Verse 7, he says, And lest I should be exalted above measure. Now that phrase, should be exalted above measure, represents one word in the Greek and it means to lift something up, to exalt something, or to be haughty. The NET translation translates it, so I would not become arrogant. And lest I should become arrogant by the abundance of the revelations. Because what happened to me 
hasn't happened to anybody else. So I am. Uh, uh, so in order for me not to get arrogant about it, God sent a thorn in the flesh. The word, the the idea of a thorn in the flesh is a metaphor for some adversity. Now there are a lot of guesses that this was some sort of health problem, eyesight problem, etc. I don't think so. I think the context always tells us what he's talking about, and he'll tell us in the in verse ten. He says, "Lest I should be ex- uh, lest I would become arrogant by the abundance of the revelations. This thorn in the flesh was given to me." It's energized by Satan. It's a messenger from Satan. The, the, word, the Greek word for messenger is angelos. That was the everyday word for a messenger. That's what angels are called. They're messengers of God, but we made the word a technical word. And so it's an angel of Satan. So it's originate that there is a, a demon who is going to be energizing resentment to Paul. Now, think about Paul. He's probably the most brilliant man on the face of the earth at the time. He has been given special revelation from God. He has been uh, seen the paradise of God in heaven, and he is communicating vital truth through his epistles. And yet he's going to be opposed. That's what verse 10 tells us, that he is going to be uh, opposed. Uh, Here's the greatest mind, and people are going to reject him. That's going to keep him humble. Verse 8, he says, Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. So he went to the Lord in prayer, and God said no three times. See, God always answers our prayer. Sometimes he says no, sometimes he says yes, and sometimes he says not yet. But he always answers the prayer. He says, concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, this is what God said, my grace is sufficient for you. Doesn't matter what the problem is. God gives us the grace, the ability, the information in Scripture to handle the circumstances. God says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made complete. Perfect has the idea in English of flawlessness. That's not what the word means. It's teleos, where we get our word teleological, meaning something with a purpose. So it has a uh, an end result, maturity. My strength is brought to completion or matured in weakness. God gets the glory because it can't be through our ability. We don't have the capacity for it. God is going to provide the strength. So what does Paul conclude in verse 9? Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities. Now, if his infirmities, if the reproaches and persecutions and all isn't the point of the thorn in the flesh, then why does he bring this up? So I think it's clear that what he is saying is, that what was what was the thorn in the flesh was the fact that he was opposed he was uh he was thought he was stoned and thought to be dead on on three occasions uh, he is involved in persecutions and distresses and God always provided for him always provided for him kept him alive gave him greater opportunities for ministry he says for when i am weak then i am strong see god wants us to learn humility Humility is how we handle how we handle arrogance, and we have to be under the hand of God. 
This is what Scripture says. So we go to the second point, which is that humility is central to learning obedience to God's authority. This is the issue in the second chapter of the epistle to the Philippians. In the first four verses, Paul is challenging them to be of the same mind. In other words, to have humility toward one another and not operate on arrogance toward one another. And then in verse 6, he begins to give an illustration, which is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says in verse 8, he says that Christ was found in appearance as a man. The idea there is that he is physically a man. He is he has true humanity. At the virgin birth, true humanity was added to the eternal deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he is found in appearance as a man, and he humbled himself. Here he is, the God of the universe, the creator. God the Father is the architect. God the Son is the one who does the work. God the Holy Spirit is the one who has the hands-on construction project. So he humbled himself as a man by being obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. He doesn't exalt himself. God will exalt him because he he humbled himself. That's essentially what obedience means. Result is that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. So the third thing is that without learning obedience to God's authority, that's humility, is we submit to God. Jesus humbled himself by being obedient. That has to start somewhere. Where do you learn obedience? The place where you start to learn obedience is in the home. That is why God designed the family. It's the third divine institution we've studied coming out of the creation that God intended the family to be the schoolhouse for immature, self-absorbed, arrogant babies to learn self-discipline and to learn to be an an, uh, uh, effective adult. So if we don't learn obedience to God's authority, ultimately, we will always struggle with submission and obedience to human authority. James 4, 6, and 7 gives us the principle. But he gives more grace. That is, God gives more grace to handle these problems. Therefore, it says God resists. God makes war. He's hostile to the arrogant, but he gives grace to the humble. Therefore, James says, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. The problem is, Romans 8, 7, because the carnal mind, the fleshly mind, our fallen sinful mind, is at enmity, our antagonism against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can it be. Romans 13, 1 talks about the fact that we have different spheres of authority in our human lives that we have to learn to obey. And trust me, parents, grandparents, uh, individuals, if you don't learn to orient yourself to authority and to humble yourselves in terms of obedience to the rightful authorities over you, you will always have problems in life. That's why it's so important for families to instill this kind of discipline into their children. You have to respect their authority. You have to be uh, respect the authority of govern, government. Romans 13.1, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. Uh, 
Titus 3.1, remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities. Now, that's not a carte blanche. We know there are exceptions when government oversteps its authority, and we've covered that in previous lessons. Um, 1 Peter 2.13-15, Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. See, if you can't submit to human authority, then the indication is you can't submit to heavenly authority. One is a barometer of the other. We're to submit to governors as to those who are sent by him, that is by God, for the punishment of evildoers. For this is the will of God. You can't get around it. When it comes to the church, the body of Christ, the universal body of Christ, not this church, but that which is composed of all believers in this age, he put all things, he, God the Father, put all things under his, God the Son's feet, and gave him, Jesus Christ, to be head over all things to the church. Christ is the authority over the church. So if you're here and you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, the ultimate authority in your life is, is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the head of the church. And so that becomes the pattern and the barometer. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. So this shows that in the house household there are authorities. There is a uh Husbands, fathers are the ultimate authority. Parents are the authority over their children. There are authorities over those who work for them. So wives are supposed to submit to your husbands as to the Lord. If you're not submitting to the Lord, you're probably not going to be submitting to the other authorities in your life and the other way around. Explanation for the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church. And he's the savior of the body. Therefore, just as this church is subject to Christ, so let wives be to their husbands in everything. Husbands are to do things as unto the Lord. That says the same thing. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Uh, servants in the household, First Peter 2, 18 and 19. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh, for this is commendable. Why? It shows grace orientation. First Peter 5, 5 and following reminds us again, as James did, that God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. How do you humble yourselves? By casting all your care upon him because he cares for you. And then this will result in these behavioral shifts that are part of the rest of our Ephesians 4 chapter. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be kind to one another, tender-hearted. And the word for forgiving here is that is built on the root for grace. Be graciously forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. So the bottom line is that the way in which we are orient ourselves to grace begins with submission to the authority of God and then submission to the other authorities that are in our life, whether they are good or bad. Notice that when Jesus Christ submitted himself to the authority of God, he submitted himself to the evil authority of both the Sanhedrin of Jerusalem as well as the Roman authority 
and by submitting himself to their authority and going to the cross, he paid for salvation. His is an example because people always say, well, it's wrong. Yes, it's wrong. Nobody's saying it's not. But they're the authority. We have to learn to be grace-oriented in life. And if you cannot understand humility and submission to the legitimate authorities that are over you, you will never understand the grace of God. And you will always struggle with authorities. And that just brings about a lot of self-induced misery. We have to remember God's grace. We look to the cross where he gave his son to die on the cross for our sins, and Christ willingly, freely submitted to God's authority and humbled himself by being obedient to go to the cross and to die for our sins, that by simply believing on him, we have everlasting life. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you so much that we had this example It is hard for us as self-sufficient, self-absorbed, arrogant creatures to understand that we are to submit to your authority. That was really the failure in the first sin is rejection of your authority. But we are to humble ourselves because as the omniscient, omnipotent creator who has revealed reality to us in your word, we know that we are sinners. We know that we have done and thought horrible things and that we cannot do anything to wipe that out. But Jesus Christ did. He paid the penalty on the cross so that by simply trusting in him, we are given his righteousness, declared righteous by you. That's grace. It's a free gift. We don't do anything to earn it or deserve it. But it's the starting point of new life. Scripture says we must be born again, and that comes by trusting in Christ alone for our salvation. So, Father, we pray that if anyone is here or anyone is in the live streaming audience or listens to this online in the coming weeks or years, that if they have never trusted in Jesus Christ as their Savior, that they would take this this opportunity to do that. God knows what you're trusting in for your eternal life. And the instant you recognize this in your mind, that Christ died for you, then you have everlasting life. So, Father, we pray that you would open our eyes and our ears spiritually to these things, that you might be glorified. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.